today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, don't forget to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an explosive interview that uh, Jane Philpott has done with McLean's Magazine is keeping the SNC story in the news. An integrity commissioner says Premier Ford didn't breach any rules with his appointment of Ron Tavener, but we do need some rules when it comes to the process on how we pick people for such a position. New Zealand has banned all semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles, and high-capacity magazines. Will other countries follow suit? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots to talk about, lots going on, uh, specifically in regard to uh, an article that is in McLean's magazine. Uh, Jane Philpott uh, being interviewed basically said uh, more needs to be told about this story, that uh, there's been a concerted effort to shut down the story and believes there's uh, evidence of uh, interference with the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal. But here's what the Prime Minister has to say. It was extremely important Uh, that the former Attorney General be allowed to share completely her perspectives, her experiences on this issue. And that is what she was able to do. The issue at question is uh, the issue of pressure around the Lavalin issue um, while she was Attorney General, and she got to speak fully to that. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, been advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers, is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, I'm sitting on the QEW, and I just I saw a sign to Hamilton. Maybe I should come down and see you. I would love not. that. Have a seat. <laughs> It'd be great to meet you in person, finally. <laughs> I can't do it today, uh, but uh, the guy in the seat today, the hot seat again, is the Prime Minister. Eh? He just uh, can't promote his budget or focus on much else at the moment, because this McLean story that Paul Wells did after talking Jane Philpott has yet again brought the story back to what actually happened or didn't happen uh, with SNC Lavala, Jody Wilson Rabel, pressure, what type of pressure, etc. It's uh, the, the government has got to be pretty frustrated with this now because they hoped, as we had talked about earlier in the week, that they'd be basking in the glory of telling stories about the budget. Not the case. Uh, in the article, uh, she said more to be told that there was uh, an effort to shut down the story, that there is evidence of uh, interference. And he, then the clip we just played of the prime minister, him saying she was able to do that. How can he make such a statement? How can a feminist make such a statement when she says there's more to be told? And, and clearly uh, uh, the prime minister's no, she had her. She spoke. She said everything that she wants. I mean, that's what he's trying to convince everyone of. Yeah, and so he's going to stick to that line, but I think most reasonable thinking Canadians who aren't necessarily partisan uh, aligned with the Liberal Party in particular, and, and even many Liberals will say, well, Prime Minister, not sure I buy this line. Well, so he's speaking back- for her. Yes, exactly. And again, gets back into trouble for that. He's been called out for all of that again today. I, I, I think, again, the the opposition and perhaps Jane Philpott, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and, and other liberals are hoping uh, that uh, both the media and uh, their peers in the public will continue to put pressure on the prime minister so that another in another hearing or, or some public discussion of this can continue, that nobody uh, is going to let this go 
despite the government's best best, uh, wishes that they did. Prior to budget day, pretty much everything was done to put this to bed, to to, to close the book here, Uh, you know, delaying the meeting until the actual budget and and then shutting down the ability for Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak again and then moving on to to another issue. It's not the opposition or filibusters or, or the media that's keeping this alive. They keep shooting themselves in the foot. And that's how they got in this mess in the first place, right? Um, I think in that interview, I read it quickly this morning that uh, Paul had done with, with Jane Philpott. She made that the point, look, okay, Prime Minister, if there really are two different versions of the story and you're not worried about what those versions may be because you think they can stand uh, on their own and Canadians can work their way through them, then let people continue to speak. And I think, again, that that's sort of a commonsensical approach that that uh, it's hard for Justin Trudeau to fight against. And I remember, and, I remember talking about this early on in in this uh, with this issue that you know is this going to come down to a definition of pressure? And really, it's not. There's something else going on here. But the prime minister is constantly trying to sell that everyone has spoke, and it's a defin- it's a difference in definition of pressure. Well, and layer onto the story, it's not just everyone has spoken. Now it's also the fact that oh, the opposition are just playing games, but. The opposition didn't force Jane Philpott to go out and speak to Paul Wells. Uh, the opposition didn't force uh, uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, the MP who stepped out of caucus, Liberal caucus, yesterday to do that. Right. Again, it's moves within his own party, so it's really hard for the prime minister to keep going out there and saying what he's saying. This is almost reminiscent of when this story started. You'll recall he did a a series of media availabilities around announcements he was doing, and there was nothing to the Globe Mail story. It was Scott Bryson's fault. Um, She still had confidence in me. She's still in the cabinet, then she left. So he's gone back to that holding line, uh, adding in its two different conversations, and everybody can choose for themselves. Well, I don't know if that's going to be enough. And the other thing he's doing He's creating rancor in the Liberal caucus. So I believe in that press conference, I was on the plane, but I I think I saw in the uh, quick tweets I was looking at that he said that Jane Philpott was going to stay in caucus and they welcomed diverse voices. I don't know how that's going to work uh, and how other members of the caucus who Ms. Philpott told Paul and and other media outlets have reported have, uh, you know, expressed their frustration and dissatisfaction with her behavior in there. So by letting her stay in, yes, I I, I admire anybody who allows dissenting voices in a caucus, but he's into this practical political quagmire where he's going to have people fighting with each other, and that could have an even bigger risk for him. So... Uh, he uh, he's not helping himself. If he's going to go in that direction, then fall on the sword and go in that direction. Let her speak. Get it behind you. Solve the problem. Move on. Shed some crocodile tears. Do what you have to do. But again, he's standing in. He, he's sort of sitting on the fence and, and playing mediator and trying to get everybody else to just make it work. Yeah, and I, I, I think and look, he goes on with this line. Can I just add? This is so frigging irritating. This unprecedented waiver that. Jody Wilson-Raybould displayed as if it was some great magnanimous, uh, vir- virtuous decision that he made uh, that is historic in nature. Well, the only reason he had to do that 
is because this mess was created by his own people in the first place, and she wasn't allowed to speak. So let's not turn the vice into a virtue there. Uh, but he, again, he's trying to put out a, a version of the facts as he sees, or his facts, I should say. Some might call it fake news; others may not. Uh, of of what happened, and, and hope that that's enough to to hold the day, and that people will wear thin of this story. Um, but that, it, at least with you know, a lot of the antagonists that are around him, the conservative opposition, the NDP, the media. That doesn't seem to be having the desired impact among them. And think, just since the budget, which was yesterday, there's been... No, no, you've already two days Oh, sorry, two days. I'm sorry, I'm like, it's all just a... Have you bought your house yet? No, you're not a millennial either, are you? (laughs) It's it's all a blur to me, Tim. You're right, I'm sorry. But in those two days, uh, the McLean's article... Another resignation of an MP, and then the CEO uh, or, or SNC Labelin comes out and says, "We never said anything about losing yeah. nine thousand jobs. We never said anything about moving the Montreal headquarters." Which is what both the Prime Minister and Gerald Butts said. Butts said it at the testimony, and we talked about it at the time. And you remember that pointed question from uh, a Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, to Jerry Butts: "Well, where is the evidence of these nine thousand jobs?" Yeah. So, was that a complete? Um, uh, political twerking by the government. It certainly looks that, that way now that Neil Bruce, the SNC CEO, is is uh, is saying all of this. So Trudeau's getting it on on all sides, and that only suggests again why why not open all of this up? Uh, because there are more questions that come and fewer answers. Uh, as I mentioned, those three things post-budget, the, clearly this, as you mentioned, this has come back to square one. This is back at the beginning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Back at the beginning and, and with a second credible messenger. Uh, this time, Jane Philpott, who really hadn't said too much other than her statement uh, when she resigned. And now she is back in the spotlight um, saying more needs to be said. She... Uh, unlike Jody Wilson-Rabel, had unquestioned credibility. I mean, you've heard, I'm sure, other guests, Mm. and you've run to your listeners talk about how well-regarded she was across party lines. She was arguably the best minister that Justin Trudeau had. They inflated her, and then she performed exceptionally well. When you have somebody like that speaking to this issue, doesn't it merit more conversation in the right form? Well, you know, here we are sort of looking in through the windows of the Liberal House, trying to find out what the heck is going on in every room and every floor. And, and maybe I'm naive to think this hasn't already happened or it's, it's, it's gone beyond this. But why doesn't Justin Trudeau sit down with both of these people, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, and say, what do you want? Where do we go? How do we fix yeah, this? Yeah, I, I think both sides would avoid that at the moment. I think both would probably view as trust being broken, although that said, I gather they well, were Well, then how do you the, fix it? They're all still in, so this isn't going to end. And they were all at the caucus meeting yesterday as, as well, too. Um, like, yeah. isn't it up to the PM? I mean, he's the, the buck stops the there. I mean, he's the leader. Should he not be calling both of the, the, these people in and saying, we gotta, we're got we not coming out of this room until we fix this? 
they may perceive that as pressure again. So they're probably being <laughs> probably being advised not to, to make those calls. Well, maybe you can have the meeting in a more cordial way than and less aggressive than what I'm being right now. You know, I, I, I just, have it at Tim Hortons Field there in Hamilton, right on the or the better yet, ju- or better go. yet, just a Tim Hortons. Maybe that would be the answer. <laughs> have a couple yeah. of Tim bits. Let's hash this out. Like I, I just don't see where this is going, and you've got two extremely powerful. Uh, sides within the same party, and neither one seems to be backing down. Well, and you've nailed it right there. So nobody, the, the government doesn't have a clear way out. I, I mean, I've talked to, to senior liberals that I know, and they're kind of befuddled as to, okay, what is the, their view of it, without disparaging a Wilson or Abel or, um, uh, or Jane Philpott, is, okay, well, what, what else is there to say? Um, so they're wondering, to your point, well, why don't we just let them speak? Or what is the danger in letting them speak as they think through the government strategy and, and, and they're coming up uh, sort of with their hands in the air saying, hmm, this could be, again, managed better. Are we going to find, if they were both allowed to speak, the Justice Committee goes, all right, let's fire it up again. Everybody's invited back and we're going to start with these two. Are we going to, are we going to find out anything more than we don't already know? Or are we just going to find more evidence of it? I think we'll pro- I, I think a, a further unflattering picture of what happened will be uh, painted. I mean, it, it seemed, you know, Jody Wilson-Rabel deserves the right to respond to some of the things that Michael Wernick and Jerry Butt spoke about in their testimony. We need to hear, I think, her version of what transpired uh, from the day she accepted the Veterans Affairs Ministerial Portfolio to resigning uh, from that portfolio. There was a lot there because there was this whole element, as you'll remember, about there being this conversation between um, the, uh, between the Prime Minister and Jody Wilson-Raybal on three different occasions over a period of 24 hours as they re-examined the facts. You'll remember the PM talked about that. Gosh, I'd like to hear about that. I'm sure many Canadians would, too. You know, uh, Tim, if you and I... Well, let me say, I won't, I won't drag you into this mess. If I'm managing this guy... Honestly, I would I would I would pull him into a room and I sit and I'm saying we need the ultimate selfie. We need the biggest selfie of your career. And that is one with you and Jane Philpot and Jody Wilson Raybold in a in a unanimous hug, handshake, whatever. And whatever you have to do to make that happen, you got to make it happen. And even if that means putting both of them back up on a, on with the Justice Committee, letting them you know say whatever it is that they want to say, you stand up there, give us some crocodile tears like you do when everyone else passes away or whatever happens, fall on the sword, be the feminist that you say that you are, and then pledge to fix it all. I mean, yeah, why I does can't... he just not do that? And Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott have both said that, right? They both suggested, and that seems to be the olive branch, the, the, the path to healing, that, hey, this should be a lesson about how we do government better, and that's what you said you were going to do. Uh, I, I'd add one thing to your theory. I'd say also, why don't you just do a, if you're going to have that, then, then have, a, have a press conference, the three of you. Yeah. Say, look, we talked. We got together. Um, you know, nothing nefarious about it. We, we wanted to get, I, I've, Sick and tired of everybody interpreting this. I sat down with Jane and Jody, and we had an open conversation. They're going to give you their view on the conversation. Here's mine. Um, so, you know, maybe that's the, the, the bold move, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. 
Uh, and you're like, and like you said, everybody is interpreting this differently, but that's because he's not letting them speak or, or the, the message is not getting out. But, you know, again, I think this would work in his favor. You know what it's like. I mean, you build somebody up, you chop them down, they apologize, they come crawling back and they do it again. I mean, this, this has, this has, that's my daily life. I'm constantly (laughs) apologizing. I'm I'm sure you probably do too, but there you go. Yes, you're right. But like, I I just, especially with his perceived character that he's the ultimate feminist, my goodness, we see him crying all the time at various gatherings that are sentimental and I'm not holding that against him by any means. So why doesn't he use what he has sold to everybody and that's that he's a feminist, that he's a girl's guy, that he's going to cry with them, he's going to fix it, promise never to do it again and move on. I mean, anybody anybody that's in a relationship knows how to do this. Isn't that true? Uh, I, I, I think he's shaken to the core. I, I think they're really rattled, and that that ought to be concerning for them, too. Just in our right, we need to reset ourselves because, yes, this issue has dominated us for six weeks. We still have a country to run and to do other things, and we can't move forward until we figure out how to be less rattled and more on top of what's actually happening here. So... Yeah, who knows? We may perhaps you and I can replace Dr. Phil now. We're providing a lot of good psychological information on healing and wellness today. I thought you could maybe get us Gerald Butt's job. <laughs> so who I'm is okay where I am? Who is driving the bus here? Who's driving the bus? Good question. Uh, that's not evidently clear. I mean, I, uh, look, I, I think uh, Katie Telford, uh, the chief of staff, uh, somebody I, I readily admit I have a lot of respect for. Uh, who's a very capable individual. Has been called out in this is notionally the person in charge with the prime minister she's the chief of staff i'm sure the prime minister has other of his uh, longtime senior aides and uh, people like dominic leblanc who are friends and in the ministry that he's taking counsel from um but again it may be a case of being all of them being too close to this right we've talked about this before sometimes it's important to bring in a bit of outside counsel who wasn't part of all of this, who haven't been there on the day to, the, through the day-to-day drama over the last six weeks, who you trust, and he, he'd done that a little bit. I think he brought in the Canadian ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton, at one point. Uh, but maybe McNaughton needs to come back. Maybe there are others who can come back and, and, uh, and, and help those who are effectively, to use a term from the First World War, a bit shell-shocked, right, by all that has happened. So what's next? What happens now? You ask me that all the time. I know. never get it right. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, again, who would have projected that today uh, Jane Philpott would have given an exclusive interview? I, I do think the one thing that is next is... Um, what about the timing of all this? Because, you know, are we assuming this interview was done like last night? Uh, yeah, I think it was done yesterday afternoon. It was or yesterday evening afternoon. By Paul. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, they're still frustrated, and I think they're there, in this case being Jane Philpott and uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, are going to still stick at this. I think the opposition's going to stick at this. Uh, the thing I'd be looking for next, I'm not going to guarantee it happens, is a bit of caucus uprising. So, you know, if, as the Prime Minister said a few hours ago or an hour ago, that jo- uh, that um, they are staying in the caucus, uh, then uh, are there other MPs that are going to start to call them out and say, hey, that's not right. I'd look for the caucus infighting, perhaps to brew a little bit over the weekend, plus some cheap shots to be thrown over the weekend by liberal MPs who will go public now about 
um, the disloyalty they see in uh, as they see it in James Philpott. That's what I'd look for next. Uh, filibuster, last question. Filibuster helping or hurting the Conservatives? I don't think it's mattering to their brand overall because, again, the, store, the, the whole purpose of it, I think, was to demonstrate... Uh, that you couldn't let go of the SNC-Lavland story. Uh, if it was hurting them, Jane Philpott just gave them a lifeline because she sort of made their point that, hey, this story isn't done yet. I know some people were a little upset with um, the the, uh, the stunts as they saw it on uh, Tuesday when Mr. Yeah. and the Conservatives interrupted the budget. But again, I think the Conservatives would say, you know what, we're not too worried about people being upset about that because we accomplished our goal which was to keep the story in the news, and I don't think it'll have lasting damage on them. Tim, Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember the story of uh, the appointment of the OPP, new OPP commissioner. Uh, Ron Tavener was the choice of, uh, well, uh, the the premier, I guess, uh, he was uh, or is good friends of the family. Many questioned that when, uh, of course, the uh, the uh, criteria for the job were lowered, and he was then allowed to uh, apply. Uh, that being said, uh, after much, uh, I guess, hoopla and investigation, uh, it, it turns out that according to the integrity commissioner, he didn't breach the rules of the appointment, but uh, perhaps we should get some more consistency in how we pick uh, a person for this position. Let's bring in Allison Smith, Queen's Park Today, and uh, she is with us now. Allison, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. What is the response uh, down at the ledge uh, with the with the the this information coming forth now? Has this put this fire out? Uh, it does not seem like it. No. Uh, well, for Doug Ford and and his administration, for their part, they're saying that they've been completely vindicated by the integrity commissioner's report. Uh, but the opposition, uh, which of course was sort of the final ruling from the integrity commissioner for did not break the law um, but what the opposition saying is did you read the other 99 pages of this report where it paints a big picture a pretty clear picture and has lots of information showing that you know the premier's office was it basically had its had its fingers all over this move uh here's what the premier had to say it is now clear that as we said from the beginning this complaint was baseless and totally political and without merit. Uh, you were talking about fingers all over the issue. Give us an example of that and uh, and and how they stretched the rules, per se. Sure. Well, I think what the actual finding is, is that there weren't really any rules. Yeah. That's why, that's why there's no, you know ruling against the premier, basically Ontario didn't have and still doesn't have a, a process in place to appoint an OPP commissioner. The premier can just sign off on it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that kind of kind of looks bad on the government is that they've spent since December telling everyone that they uh, conducted a third party process to appoint Tavener uh, and it wasn't their idea. But what it sort of turns out is Yes, they were they were in it all along, and while that was okay, why were they sort of putting up this uh, sham, for a lack of a better word, and pretending that they were 
conducting a, a, a bigger, wider search process and, and had, you know, uh, they were paying a public uh, or a HR firm to interview people and, and to sign off on this. Why were they doing that if it was all good in the first place? What were they trying to, uh, how were they trying to skew the public perception of appointing Ford's friend into this big job? Uh, the uh, integrity commissioner ruled he was at arm's length, and uh, and obviously that we need to re uh, uh, redo the process or, or come up mm-hmm. as you said with some sort of rules. Uh, mm-hmm. How this has worked in the past? Has there been issues in the past where this has happened? Uh, has should this have been done a long time ago? I mean, it sounds sounds like yes that that, that a new process does have to be in place. But I think I mean we saw the the government, since Tavener uh, rescinded his application, has appointed a new OPP commissioner mm-hmm. uh, who seems to have nothing to do with the government. And, you know, everyone was fine with it. Uh, he had a lot of experience, met the qualifications. Okay, sure, be the OPP commissioner. Like, that, not everything has to be a political scandal. Uh, I think it really was just the, you know, years and years of closeness between Tavener and, and the family, uh, the Ford family, that, that, you know, got people's eyebrows raised. And now, yeah, the government's trying to, trying to turn it around and say it's the NDP that's made this political. So that's sort of where we're at right now. The NDP are calling for a uh, public inquiry into the hiring. Uh, I don't think we're going to see that because of uh, we have a majority government here. So it's hard to say where this goes, but it does uh, it does show that there was there was some meddling from the premier's office for sure. Also, prior to uh, offering Tavener this job or helping him, you know, shepherding him through this, they previously offered him a very high-paying job at the Ontario Cannabis Store, which he eventually turned down. Mm. So it looks like, you know, either way you pull the strings, the premier was ready to to give his give his friend a, an important position. The fact that Tavener has now or backed out of this a few weeks ago does that change the story in any way? Should he have stayed in? Or in the uh, or in the end, just too many questions. I mean, I guess I think that he made the decision, uh, or I mean, allegedly he made the decision. I mean, a part of the you know what came out in this report was that the premier's office actually, seemingly, uh, I don't know if they hired, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, at least recruited um, a, a lobbyist who used to work on Doug Ford's campaign to actually write Tavener's resignation letter for him. Uh, the day that he decided to to step down, so that's just another another place where the that everything's everything's very close. So I think I mean if anything's going to put this to bed for the government, yes, Tavener stepping down helped, and and this report, you know, technically saying that the, that the premier didn't break the law, of course, is, of course helps. Uh, whether or not the opposition will keep making hay out of it uh, remains to be seen. Allison Smith has been with us, Queen's Park today, talking about the integrity commissioner clearing Ford, but saying uh, you need some rules here so we can get some consistency. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As a result of uh, the tragedy that has happened in New Zealand, all military-style weapons, uh, all military-style semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles, high-capacity magazines will now be banned in New Zealand following uh, last week's attack. Uh, Here's what the Prime Minister of New Zealand had to say, uh, Jacinda Ardern. 
The effect of this will mean that no one will be able to buy these weapons without a permit to procure from the police. I can assure people there, there is no point in applying for such a permit. And here's what the New Zealand Police Commissioner Mike Bush had to say. People who were, prior to 3pm, lawfully in possession of firearms such as semi-automatic assault rifles are no longer lawfully in possession of those firearms due to the categorisation or the change in categorisation. Dr. Robert Huish is with us, Associate Professor, Undergraduate Advisor, Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University, with us now. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Are you surprised how quick this happened? In a way, if it was any other country than New Zealand, I'd be very, very shocked by this. But in many ways, the, the Kiwi government can move pretty fast when it wants to get something tabled and passed, and especially with something where there's absolutely no opposition to this in New Zealand. Uh, I have myself uh, worked at uh, several uh, universities in New Zealand, and I can tell you that my uh, friends and associates down there uh, are all on board with this. It's something that uh, that Jacinda Ardern, the uh, the Prime Minister who you just played, uh, her, her clip summarizes it perfectly. Uh, there's There's not a sense of purpose for having semi-automatic weapons in that country. Why in New Zealand, nowhere else? Well, there's a few points. I mean, in New Zealand, there's only about 4 million-plus people there, and mm. they're, cre- they're fairly isolated from the rest of the world geographically. I mean, it's a, it's a four-hour flight to Australia, and everywhere else after that is at least 10 to, to 14 hours, depending where you're going. But there is a sense of being all alone and all together. And the kind of language that was used in response to, to this terrorist attack was very direct. It wasn't uh, considered an accident. It wasn't considered a one-off thing. This was seen as an attack at the heart of the nation itself. So the government in New Zealand responded in exactly that way, not looking at it as just one person with deranged ideas, but seeing that, that attack as a national security priority. And when any nation decides to, to elevate a cause to that high of a level, the political will to make things move comes about quickly. Uh, the Prime Minister even emphasized that I believe this was done in six days. Yeah. Uh, so, so obviously that meant a lot to her to get this done ASAP. What does that say? Well, it also says that, the, that most New Zealanders were behind her on this. Uh, even those who, uh, you know, sell guns and weapons in, 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 the, in the country. How surprised are you with that, that even manufacturers were saying that? Well, yeah, and this is the thing. I mean, we don't have the same sort of mass lobbying on the, the government in Wellington, New Zealand, as we do, say, in the United States or even in Canada. I mean, of course, in the United States, there is chronic debate about the Second Amendment to the, con- to the, to the Constitution, about carrying firearms, uh, the NRA is an enormously powerful organization that uh, you know can bear witness to mass shootings and atrocities in the U.S. and then still try to justify it as being being an accident. And even here in Canada, there's quite a few uh, lobby groups that are interested in protecting the rights or, or the the uh, access to to owning to owning firearms. But in New Zealand, there's only four million people there, and uh, very few of them uh, are actually hunters. 
uh, to begin with, and even fewer still would look at automatic weapons of any sort as being a sports or recreation device. So it's not a popular, uh, it's not a popular area where people have have engaged and invested a lot of time and attention, as we've seen in the U.S., for example. Does this send a message to the rest of the world? It does. It's a very clear one, and that is to look at saying that automatic weapons have one purpose, one per- one purpose only. That is to end life and to do it in a quick and chaotic and often terrifying way. So by New Zealand taking this bold step and other steps that they've done, too, in the wake of this tragedy is really important in changing how we think about why mass shootings occur in the first place and how we can respond. The The difficulty will be, especially in the United States, that's one issue aside where you know, Donald Trump is very, very close to the National Rifle Association. But even in Canada, uh, we've seen we've seen Bill Blair announce uh, that there'd be bans on similar weapons here. Uh, the proposal to do so, but really we've got to we've got to just come to terms with how we need to go beyond the the lobbying and the promotion of the right to firearms and just see this as a really important not just public health issue but national security issue. I'm sure there'd be those in the states that would say, um, you know, do we, well, I'm sure some would say, do we have to kill 50 people in order to make an impact? Supporters of guns would probably said 50 people wouldn't get killed if other people had guns. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the, the argument where we can just throw grenades at each other and yeah. no, none of the pins will come out. But but uh, do, do you have to have? Like, I mean, there's been some pretty big shootings in the in, in mass shootings in the United States. Do we need 50 dead? Something like this? One guy, a domestic terrorist? Is that what's going to change this? I think what we need to do is realize that these events aren't going to are they're not going to stop unless people have access to these weapons and are able to use it and know how to use it. So the more that gun culture in the U.S. is encouraged, we see it in, uh, you know, movies and in television, it's 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 around us all the time. Uh, As long as that isn't challenged, and I mean directly challenged, like it's been done in New Zealand, uh, then there's always going to be the encouragement and emphasis for it, that if a tragedy does occur, some will argue it was just a one-off mistake. Uh, that if you did have other weapons around, it wouldn't have happened, even though we know that is, that is completely false. Uh, the, more, the more weapons that are on the streets, the more dangerous it becomes, quite simply. So if we had strong political leadership in the U.S. or here, or any country for that matter, that directly took on the weapons makers, the gun lobby, head-on and said, enough, we don't need this anymore in 2019 going forward, then we can start to see change. And fortunately, we've seen Jacinda Ardern in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, be the, in many ways the bravest person in the world by taking on that, that very lobby. What about the numbers? Do you need mass casualty, these kinds of numbers, before people will notice? I mean, does there have to be a, a killing in, although look what even happened in Vegas, my goodness, but does there have to, does that have to be something where there's 100 dead? There's, there's certainly a draw in the numbers. I mean, we look at what went on in New Zealand last week and then what went on in the Netherlands just a few days ago where three people were killed on public transit by a, by a shooter there. That story has gained a lot less attention. But in many ways, it's been framed in a, in a different, different light as well, where New Zealand really embraced this as a, as a national moment of mourning, of emergency, of response. And uh, we haven't seen that kind of language come out in the, with the case of the Dutch shooting. So 
in many ways, we, we do see this, but of course, you know, there was a tremendous loss of life in Quebec City uh, in a similar way mm-hmm. where people were, at, you know, attending prayers and uh, they were, they too uh, experienced a devastating massacre. And, you know, when we see multiple loss of life in a needless way, senseless way, uh, that is motivated by these intentions by these shooters, I mean, it, it's time for, for governments and society to wake up and say that... Uh, this can happen anywhere to anyone as long as these tools are available to make it happen. Is it different that it's a domestic terrorist, someone from there, and a New white Zealand? guy? Right. Well, New Zealand isn't really concerned with that. Uh, the individual, again, came from Australia and was residing in, in New Zealand, but they see this terrorism full stop. Yeah. That anyone, uh, regardless of religion, race, ethnicity, right. gender even, was to take this on— you qualify as a terrorist and we'll deal with you in that way. And that's why even the Prime, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, she said, we're not even going to call him by name. Yeah, um, We're going to deny him the publicity that that guy sought, and we're going to do it even by taking his name away from him. I thought that was a tremendously powerful yeah. uh, stance, and uh, one that just says, no, if you engage in this act, it doesn't matter who you are. If you do it afterwards, you are nothing, and we'll remember the victims. Yeah, very courageous leader. Uh, How do New Zealand's new gun laws compare to Canada's? Well, in many ways, they're catching up in terms of uh, accessibility to firearms. Uh, There are... Who is catching up? We are or they are? No, New Zealand to us in some ways. Right. I mean, if we can recall back to the the politics of the long gun registry here in Canada, New Zealand had nothing like that. Um, (laughs) It's very easy to go to New Zealand and and go on a hunting holiday, and, and farmers, you know, quite regularly are, are after deer because they're considered uh, invasive species there. And it's, it's a very, it's not a very well-restricted environment to get access to right. hunting and weapons and firearms. Mm-hmm. So now that's going to be buckled down. But what we're going to see here is New Zealand probably go further into the lead to say that uh, not just uh, semi-automatic war- weapons, but any weapon that can be modified will be scrutinized. And that if you are a farmer or if you are a, um, a sportsman who want to do hunting, okay, fine. You've got your right to do that. But anyone else who's craving access to weapons will be scrutinized very, very harshly. And uh, this is where we can likely see some very, in, very important innovations coming out of New Zealand. So um, I, uh, how will the world react? Let's start with uh, Canada. Will, will, how will Canada react to this? Uh, New Zealand doing this, is this a reason for Canada to... to... Yeah, I think we've already seen Canada pay very close attention to New Zealand's response to this tragedy. Uh, in one way, the um, you know can- the Canadian government removed advertising from social media for for three days to say you know the the shootings were broadcast through social media. We won't support it that way. Bill Blair is looking very carefully at how that ban is being implemented uh, from Wellington, New Zealand, and in what ways the policy could be mimicked here. So I think you're going to see not just Canada, but also Europe, especially Australia, take a look at how New Zealand pulls this off. And more importantly, how those who do currently possess these weapons and who are sports, you know, sports hunters and and do this for recreation, how they respond to it. Uh, The New Zealand police commissioner was very, very direct that if you are in possession of an automatic weapon, you no longer or, or having that possession legally. Right. Um, and that'll be a curious response for other na- nations to follow. Can we do it bordering the United States? 
Well, we've done other things that have been pretty bold while bordering the United States. For example, legalization of cannabis. Uh, there was a lot yeah. of worry about that Good point. Uh, and, and, and how the, the border guards were going to react to it. Uh, there's certainly our CBSA uh, border crossing staff, they are, they're very vigilant on weapons coming into the country. Uh, and I think there's a way to make that vigilance even, even greater. Of course, the counter argument is to say that if you crack down on weapons in a, and, and legalize weapons, you're going to find an illegal market coming up. That is always going to be a challenge. Uh, and that's one that we need to also respond to. But the moral decision to say that automatic weapons should should be just out of the hands of everybody. War on guns, like, like war on guns, like the war on drugs. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you you make it uh, harder to get. It just goes underground. I mean, same thing. It, it might be in that you've got you've got so many weapons in the world right now uh, that that are being marketed and, and pushed around through black market channels. There's all sorts of weapons that get transported illegally, especially via sea. And uh, it's not hard to find one, especially in, in conflict areas, if it's in uh, South a- Southeast Asia or, or if it's in uh, the parts of Central or Western Africa. Firearms are, are around the world. How we have to deal with this uh, needs to be done in a way that also counters that, that access to that black market. So New Zealand was sort of in a position where there's only a few ports, there's only so many people, and there is that distance where yeah. it makes monitoring what comes in and out of that country much easier. Yeah. But in Canada, we do have a lot of territory and a lot of ports to cover. It would be difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's unjust. All right, the big question, what's the U.S. going to learn from this? How do they react? Very, very little, I think, will be learned in the U.S. until, until there's a change of government there. Uh, we shouldn't forget just the influence that the National Rifle Association has on that country and also that the biggest weapons manufacturers in the world are all housed in the United States or those that have close associations too. This is a huge industry. Uh, there are, there's, there's almost a numbness to the frequency uh, within the U.S. of, of these sorts of tragedies, uh, of shootings. I mean, it's something that, that we see so often in the U.S. that we really need a strong political voice to change the tune. And until that happens, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't imagine that we're going to see a lot of change or reform in the U.S., under, especially under Donald Trump. Will, but, but will even a change in government help? I mean, my God, this has been an, uh, an ongoing problem for many political striped governments over the past. Uh, like you said, is the NRA just too powerful? They do have a lot of influence, and also the weapons makers themselves have a lot of influence. Um, it's going to be a big change. And again, back to the Wild West, and even before, uh, there's always been fights over protection, use, and ownership of firearms in the U.S. Uh, not until something can really change in a radical way where uh, there's, there's popular buy-in to reject this from occurring. Uh, we, won't, we won't see progress, unfortunately. And sometimes it takes a while. Uh, but that doesn't mean the rest of the world can't can't smarten up without the United States leading the way. Uh, this could be a good time for other other nations that are tied to NATO, uh, who do have the security, the resources for international surveillance of firearms, to talk about how these firearms are actually used and acquired within their own nations. So, you know, if the U.S. isn't ready to catch up to the 21st century, then hopefully other nations could. Uh, is there anything that a president can do here, um, no matter what the political stripe is? Is there, is there growing 
concern about this? Is there a growing movement that eventually you're optimistic that this will change in the U.S.? Not, not quickly, and again, not with, with Donald Trump being in office. I mean, as we saw uh, Jacinda Ardern do in, in Wellington was to take, a, take an item, a semi-automatic firearm, and make it illegal. Uh, those sorts of things can, can technically be passed by any government in the world. Would there be enough senators and congresspersons in the U.S. to be courageous enough to do that? Not if you've got the NRA backing a lot of their their political campaigns, especially in, in Republican and states, and especially those in, in some of the southern and interior states. So on paper, it could happen. But right now, do we have the people in place to make it happen? I don't think so. Uh, and and again, banning these is ports of entry, what have you. I mean, we see drugs coming and going, uh, stolen property, what have you. Is there any way if someone wants one, not you know, not to get one? I mean, can you? Or is right. it is it naive to think we can get a handle on this? The the only thing that may have a slight bit of encouragement is to actually address not so much the smugglers and. The, the sellers of, of weapons, but to actually go with the manufacturers. And this is a real issue where if you've got so many auto, semi-automatic weapons that are produced within the United States, what we would need to see is some sort of enactment within the U.S. government that targets those manufacturers to take that market away from them, either by making the production of these arms illegal or by incentivizing them to make something else that would be more important and useful for society. That's one idea. Uh, of course, there's other, there's other governments that are also weapon makers, so you would need to see that fall overseas as well. And finally, when militaries go into a theater of operations and they bring in their, their automatic weapons and small arms, they don't bring them back with them. They tend to leave them in the country. This is something we saw in Afghanistan hmm. uh, with the United States and also parts of, of um of Western Africa after a series of conflicts there is that they leave weapons caches behind. Those get sold off to the highest bidder, and away we go. So, again, you have to be very creative about what can be done. Targeting manufacturers, hopefully that's a, that's a step in the right direction. Is there going to be enough uh, political willpower to make that happen? That'll be a big question. Uh, at the end of the day, it's people that instigate change. Are, are, are people looking at this and, and saying or asking themselves, New Zealand can do it. Why not us? Their prime minister so. can do it. Why not us? I, I, I hope so. And I think that if, I think if, if more people were, were to realize that something like creating that political momentum, encouraging leaders in government to actually subscribe to it and dedicate themselves to it, and then going as far as targeting manufacturers, that would be a huge step, right? But we see even the pushback about how that deals with weapons manufacturers, even in Canada, with the, the armed vehicle issues. The mm. same over to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, good point. There's a lot of money to be made in yeah. weapons, weapons sales. There's a huge amount of U.S. foreign development assistance that's actually going towards procurement of weapons for other countries and allies. It's a huge industry, and that's going to have a major economic ripple effect. Again, New Zealand, only 4 million people, small market, isolated, they tend to do their own thing. But really what we're getting at isn't just a small little tweak. This is a, this is a time for actual real radical reform about how we want to invest our resources and our money and our public money into weapons that 
that kill each other with frequency and ease or into other sectors. I mean, this is a this could be a, a really important era to try to get away from habits of the past. And hopefully this New Zealand case, as tragic as it is, can contribute to that conversation in some way. Dr. Robert Huish has been with us, Associate Professor, Undergraduate Advisor, Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University. Robert, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care now. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.